Good evening guys and welcome to our first uh, Bible study of 2023. We're obviously continuing through the Gospel of John and we've reached uh, John chapter 14. Before we have a bit of a read, a bit of a think through things, let's have a word of prayer and ask the Lord to be with us this evening. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your blessings towards in Christ. Help us Lord tonight to hear your word, to be challenged by your word and to be obedient to what you call us to, to do. And help me Lord to preach your word faithfully. Um, help me Lord to say the things that you want me to say and to refrain from those things that you don't want me to say. Then help uh, us Lord all to give up the glory and the honour to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Cool. Well, Happy New Year everybody. And I hope you've had a blessed time over the festive season. And ultimately we're now reaching John chapter 14. We've taken 10 months to get here but in that 10 months, we've walked through the first 13 chapters of the Gospel of John, and we're now two thirds of the way through, in fact, this fourth Gospel. When it comes to uh, looking through the Gospel of John, it's always worth reminding ourselves of the path we've just trodden. And it's a general principle we need to bear in mind when we're doing um, expositional Bible teaching. So what have we seen so far? Well, we've seen that the Gospel of John, unlike the rest of the Gospels, had one mission in mind, and it was the mission to show that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was indeed the promised Messiah, the promised Saviour. And that he was trustworthy and he was so trustworthy that he was the one in which we could put our faith for salvation. John 20, 31 says, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Secondly, we've seen in multiple places in this gospel, Christ being shown as fully God and fully man. And John 1, 1 to 5 gives us an apt demonstration of this. And we'll be covering more examples of this as we go through chapter 14. Thirdly, we've seen specifically multiple statements that Christ made about who he is and what he came to do. The so-called I am statements. And so far we've seen five in the Gospel of John. John 6, 48, yes, I am the bread of life. John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. John 10, 9, yes, I am the gate. So we have the bread of life, the light of the world and the gate. John 10, 11, two verses later, I am the good shepherd. And then John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. We've also seen explicit statements of the gospel message. John 3.16 being probably the most famous Bible passage in the entire of the Bible. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. That so everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And throughout this narrative that John has been weaving, we've seen multiple examples, multiple illustrations of Jesus' personal interaction with different people in his ministry. We've seen the wedding at Cana, we've seen Nicodemus, we've seen the Samaritans, we've seen um, the lame man, we've seen the feeding of the 5,000, we've seen his interaction with his own family, we've seen Lazarus, we've seen the woman caught in adultery, and the list goes on. But Jesus makes these truths personal. And he's talking to people, individual people, along the way in his ministry about why they should come to him. Which brings us nicely now 
into chapter 14, having covered the original context of what we've studied so far. Pastor Wan finished off chapter 13 a few weeks ago, <clears throat> and he finished off um, at the beginning of a very important part of the Gospel of John, starting at John 13, 31. And this continues, this, this tract or section of John, until the end of chapter 17. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. It's the longest of the four discourses we find in the New Testament. The other one being, of course, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 7, the Discourse of the Kingdom Parables in Matthew 13, and the Olivet Discourse, which is the end times description of what will happen to Israel in Matthew 24 to 25. So what is the Upper Room Discourse? And what is the key thing to bear in mind as we study through this evening? Well, John 13 to John 19, actually, just beyond the Upper Room Discourse, is the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. The first 12 chapters are the three years, and indeed, at the first bit of the John, John 1, it's eternity past. But John 13 to the end of John 19 is just one week's period, which means a third of the Gospel of John focuses specifically on the events leading to the cross, the death, the burial and the resurrection. Because ultimately, without the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus, there is no hope. So John really gets a magnifying glass out and zooms in <clears throat> on the last week of Jesus' life. And indeed, the Upper Room Discourse is a long, lengthy conversation in the course of the night. So it's just four chapters on one conversation. And secondly... In chapter 13, verses 30 to 31, something very important happens. Uh, verse 30. So Judas left at once, going out into the night. As soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, and then he starts the discourse. What happened here? Well, the 12th disciple, Judas Iscariot, the one who is described as the betrayer by Jesus in chapter 13, he leaves the room. We're then left with just 11 disciples and Jesus. The 12th disciple, Judas, has gone. This means that everything that Jesus says in this room, in this discourse, is primarily for believers. Because the only unbeliever in the room has left. And indeed, it's very interesting. Um, multiple theologians have said the upper room discourse is sort of the, the seed bed or the beginnings of the truths that we find in the rest of the New Testament about how the church will operate, about how, how disciples are to interact with their saviour and about how the Holy Spirit will minister within the church and within the body of Christ and how those truths then permeate into our everyday life. In essence, the Upper Room Discourse is the first revelation that Jesus makes about the church, specifically and is also his final will and testament to his disciples while he is still on the earth and alive with us on the earth in his incarnate state. <clears throat> so with that all in mind, we flow into the beginning of chapter 14, remembering that this is talking to believers and remembering the context of what has just happened. What has just happened is that the disciples have been told by Jesus that he's going to leave that he's going to go to the cross and that many of them will fail him, including Peter specifically, denying Christ three times. So imagine the scene, verse 1. 
Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. We've got the 11 disciples. We've got Jesus in the middle of the room. And the 11 disciples are shocked. They're probably withdrawn. They might even be visibly fearful. They'd just witnessed Judas leave the room. They hadn't quite worked out why at this point, as one helpfully pointed out last time. But something had changed. Jesus had told them he was going to leave. He had told them he was going to die. <clears throat> he told them this previously, but they hadn't really got the message. The one who they followed for three years, faithfully followed every day, was going to be leaving them. And given Jesus' track record of being 100% correct 100% of the time, because he is ultimately fully God and fully man, they knew that this statement about him leaving was going to happen. What was Christ's first response to the disciples in their hour of being anxious, their hour of being distressed, their hour of being uncertain? Don't let your heart be troubled. The word troubled here is a very interesting word. It's from the Greek word tarasso, which has a sense of both disturbance, both physical or mental, and indeed agitation. And I don't know if you've ever been on a lake that's very still before, and then suddenly you see a boat go past and the waters are disturbed and moved by, uh, by the boat. This is the sort of sense in which we see this word. Stillness being followed by sudden disturbance, sudden waves, sudden agitation. And it's the same word used in John 5, uh, chapter, uh, John 5 verse 4, which describes the waters of Siloam or the pools of Siloam being troubled by the angel, as the angel stirs up the waters. But there are four uses <clears throat> of this word before John chapter 14 in John. The first is mentioned with the pool of Siloam. And then in chapter 11, 12 and 13, there is one use per chapter. And it's each time describing Jesus being agitated or distressed, which is a very interesting thing. In chapter 11, Jesus was distressed when he saw the suffering of Lazarus. In chapter 12, Jesus was distressed as he contemplated his suffering on the cross. And in chapter 13, Jesus was distressed, as in his physical state at least as a human being, at the contemplation of Judas betraying him. There is no such thing as coincidence in scripture. And I don't think it's a coincidence that John uses the same word in four straight chapters, the first three being used of Jesus in his distress. But then notice what happens. There's a reversal. Jesus then becomes the comforter of those that are distressed. That's really interesting. Of course, Jesus suffered on the cross. Jesus suffered at the thought of going to the cross and it was in his humanity, this suffering that he had to go through, that in some parts qualified him to be our high priest, to be our mediator between God and man. Hebrews 5, 7 to 10 gives us a glimpse into this. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. 
In this way, God qualified him as the perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And God designated him to be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus' distress in the events leading up to the cross, and specifically in this passage leading up to Gethsemane, show him and indeed qualify him to be able to walk in our, to walk in our path, to be our high priest. Because he understands what we go through, because he's been through it ourselves. As our high priest, he understands just what it means to suffer. So when he draws close to us in our hour of need, he's been there. He's done that. And more importantly, he's able to minister to us personally when we need it most. And what did Jesus do in his distress? Well, we see in the Garden of Gethsemane in particular, he cried out to his father in prayer. He was dependent on his father in heaven. And notice what it says in Hebrews. The father heard his prayer. And specifically in the context of that passage, as a result, Jesus was risen again from the dead. He defeated death for us, all because he was obedient to his father. Christ's response to his distress, to his agitation, to his difficult circumstances, was to turn to the father. What is our response if we are going through difficulties right now in 2023? Do we turn to the Father in heaven, in dependency upon him? Or do we try and fix our own problems, inevitably ending up with our face in the mud? We are to mirror what Jesus did. We are to turn to our Father, as he calls us to do. We are to obey that call to turn to him. We're to pour out our soul to him in worship and prayer, in the midst of the storm. And it's this obedience that Jesus shows us. That means the roles are reversed in chapter 14. Instead of Jesus being distressed and discomforted, he is now the one comforting his disciples. Don't let your hearts be afraid, Jesus says, because he's known what it means to have an afraid heart, to have a distressed heart in chapters 11, 12 and 13. The road of suffering, if walked by faith, does prepare us to minister to others in times of need or similar distress. And that's what Jesus mirrors and shows us here. Jesus, in facing his distress by faith, had been prepared to, been prepared to minister to those who were distressed and in need. And of course, he's our risen and conquering king. He is alive today at the right hand of the Father, continuing to intercede for us as our high priest. But he knows. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like to feel anguish. And that should give us great confidence to turn to him when we're going through difficulties. The God of the heaven and the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, humbled himself and went down to our level. <clears throat> that is the most amazing truth. You see, when things go wrong, when we ourselves have problems, we always have a choice as a believer in Jesus Christ. We can either turn to God in dependency, we can talk to him openly, 
we can share our burdens or we can turn on God <clears throat> rather than turning to God making him out to be some dispassionate force who doesn't care for us, who just abandoned us we know from scripture that is not correct so we have a choice we can turn in faith to the Lord or we can turn away not showing faith to the Lord but instead trying to fix our own problems and of course our response to suffering is critical if we turn in faith to God if we turn to him and show dependency on him if we ask him to be our hope our joy and our peace in spite of the circumstances he will be there with us in the fire he will strengthen us and use those difficulties to allow us to minister to others in the future to share one another's burdens with an understanding of what that burden actually is And it's really fascinating, as a Bible teacher called Ironside points out, that these words were being spoken to Peter. Peter, who had not yet failed, but he had been predicted to fail. Who had not yet messed up, but would mess up. <clears throat> this is a call to confession as well. It's a call to confession of sin to the Lord. To trust in the Lord and all of his goodness. To trust in the Lord to redeem our circumstances, circumstances that we may have created for ourselves by not initially responding in faith. Sometimes we don't create those circumstances ourselves. Sometimes things happen to us. But sometimes our response to bad things can make things worse. The Lord can redeem those circumstances. The Lord can redeem your circumstances. He can do what he says in Romans 8.28 for all those who love and trust him and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them he doesn't want you to languish in a difficult situation in your own strength he wants you to depend on him on the father in heaven so that you may indeed be built up in the storm so that when he releases you from the storm, you're ready to minister to others. But how do we get to this mindset, this mindset of trust in the Lord in the midst of difficulty? Well, Jesus gives us a really good clue again in verse 1, the second half of verse 1. Trust in God and trust also in me. This is a profound statement on so many levels. Jesus wasn't asking us to have a trust in human beings. He wasn't asking us to trust in angelic beings. He wasn't asking, asking us to put trust in devices, in smartphones, in iPads, in computers. He wasn't asking us to put trust in anything else apart from himself. And Job um, 4, 17-21 reminds us of why that can be the case. That humans, angels, everything else will fail us. Can a mortal be innocent before God? Can anyone be pure before the Creator? If God does not trust his angels and has charged his messengers with foolishness, how much less will he trust people made of clay? They are made of dust, crushed as easily as a moth. They are alive in the morning, but dead by the evening, gone forever without a trace. Their tent cords are pulled, and the tent collapses, and they die in ignorance. Instead of trusting in men, Instead of trusting in angels, 
instead of trusting in created things, we are to put our trust, trust in the living God of heaven and earth. The same God who time and time again has proven himself to be faithful in the disciples' lives and indeed in Israel's history, throughout the history of Israel, as we see as we go through the Old Testament on Sunday mornings, and indeed in your life. Jesus has been faithful time and time again. He's been faithful to keep his word. He's been faithful to be with us in the storms. He has been faithful every step of the way. And this very much mirrors the picture of Hebrews 11, the great chapter of faith in God, that describes various examples of believers in the Old Testament overcoming great difficulty by believing in the one who could save them, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Hebrews 11, 1 to 2. Faith shows the reality of what we hoped for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. And of course, the reputation of Israel as believing in God was something that specifically the Lord was asking them to trust in at this stage. Trusting God. Don't have a blind faith. Don't have a faith that isn't directed to God himself. Don't just believe everything will turn out all right. Believe in the Lord personally. Because ultimately, as Hebrews eleven six says, it is impossible to please God without faith. And anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. And this is all very much supported by other Old Testament passages. From the Psalms in particular, confirming again that it is trusting in God specifically, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob specifically, that brings us hope in the midst of storms. Psalm 43 verse 5, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope, notice, in God. I will praise him again, my saviour and my God. Psalm 56 Verses three and four. But when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. I will pray. I praise God for what he has promised. I trust in God. So why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? <clears throat> but something else Jesus does in this statement is he puts to bed all other notions that he is anybody else other than God himself. Because notice what Jesus says. You trust God. Trust also in me. And it's a command, it's not a suggestion. Jesus knew the passages from the Psalms. He knew what he was doing when he said the various I am statements throughout the Gospel of John. He was referring or referencing back to Exodus 3, 14 to 15. Notice what it says carefully. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, notice now, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. Why is this passage in Exodus so significant? 
it is because God himself ascribes the names he wishes to be called by the people of Israel. We have Elohim in verse 14 of Exodus chapter 3. We have the I am statement or the I am phrase. And then in verse 15, God is specifically described as the God of your fathers. And that is the name Jehovah or Yahweh. Jesus knew this passage. He knew repeatedly what he was doing when he ascribed I am statements to himself. When he quoted the Psalms, when he referenced very similar themes to multiple Old Testament passages. To trust in God was something that only you could do to God. So Jesus, by saying trust in God and on the same level trust also in me, is making a direct claim to be fully God. To be Jehovah God. Not just any old God. To be Jehovah God. The God of Israel. This evening as we start 2023. There's a simple application here. It is a matter of who you trust. That really determines what will happen to you this year. Jesus says to his disciples. Trust. Which is a command. In me. Knowing full well that in Psalm 43 and Psalm 56, trust or faith is only ever directed towards God himself. Because God is the only one that is 100% trustworthy every time. Jesus says, I am, multiple times in the Gospel of John, knowing full well that that was an exclusive name to the Lord himself. And indeed the Jews, as we have covered already in John tried multiple times to kill him and to move him on because he was using such a name as the name of God. We can believe the testimony of Jesus. We can believe he is God. We can believe what people have seen time and time again about his life and his ministry. We can believe that he is the only way to salvation, that the God-man, Jesus Christ, came, he died and he rose again. We can believe the testimony of scripture. Or we can believe what other people say about Jesus. Other people say he's just a prophet. He's just an angel. He's just a good man. The scripture is crystal clear. Jesus is God incarnate. We can be confident tonight that we worship a risen and living saviour. That that risen and living saviour is Jesus Christ. And that he is worthy of our exclusive trust as we enter this new year. So if you're going through some difficulties this year, if you've already started the year with difficult news or with anxiety about the future, know that Jesus' words are for you. Yes, they have a context in this passage. And that context is the disciples um, being told that he was going to leave them. But they do apply to you also. Do not be afraid, Jesus says. You believe in God, believe also in me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it speaks to us, that it is alive, that it is living, that it is a two-edged sword. And that, Lord, you do comfort us, you challenge us, and you convict us to live for you as we read it. Help us, Lord, to apply these things to our lives. Help us, Lord, to be able to comfort those who need to be comforted this new year. Help us to see every difficulty and challenge this year as an opportunity to grow in faith and to grow in our usefulness for the kingdom. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great night.